All right, we are back. I think I want to partially reverse myself on something I said on last week's program, talking about the nut, the murderous nut who killed so many and injured so many more in Las Vegas. I said it was rather silly to wonder why it is he did it. I said that because there's no possible sane answer that's going to come back for why you would commit that kind of mayhem. On the other hand, as I think about it, there might be some insights gained from how it is some nut came to think this was something he ought to do. Maybe think isn't the right word. There's talk about how this character was a real estate investor and dedicated gambler, a guy who would spend 14 hours all night long in a kind of trance playing high-stakes video poker machines. People are suggesting maybe he's chasing the dopamine hit that comes with a, uh, you know, variable reward system of the slot machine. We don't know much about this character, apparently, but we do know that he was a numbers guy and did calculate optimum trajectories, distances of his gunfire to cause maximum fatalities. Seth Barron, writing in cityjournal.org, said he may have killed for the same reason he gambled, just for thrills. Some people are surprised by the fact that the NRA has indicated that maybe he'd be against these bump stocks that were important to turning a semi-automatic weapon into automatic fire. Some are saying there's so many workarounds to that that the NRA giving that up is just a ruse. I don't know the answer. And I know that if you ban large ammunition clips, they'll still be available on the black market. But, you know, why should those be legal? That's a rhetorical question. For the same reason that silencers are not legal. If you have a silencer on your weapon, well, let's face it, you're probably up to no good. Mr. Mullen voices an objection to that, noting that if you went to the gun range with a silencer, it'd be a lot pleasanter experience. I agree. Well, I'll make a note, Mr. Miller. On a future program, we need to talk about Mitch Werbel. And who might that be? A guy that invented a silencer that worked incredibly well on automatic weapons. He caught the eye of some people in the central intelligence agencies and arms merchants around the world. And, well, he's a sordid tale we should delve into someday. And here's a sordid tale of much less import, but curious... Tennis star or former tennis star Boris Becker may have to sell off all of his Wimbledon trophies and could have his homes repossessed after reportedly racking up more than $70 million in debt. Evidently, the tennis star declared bankruptcy last June, but the German press is saying that his reported debts are just the tip of the iceberg and that he has burned through tens of millions of dollars on failed business ventures, divorces, and years of lavish living. Becker's been instructed not to remove any of his trophies from his London home and is now reportedly considering accepting $650,000 to appear on a British reality TV show. A source says he needs a way to make a lot of money fast. Well, we have to counsel Mr. Becker that, you know, if you're irresponsible and drive yourself into bankruptcy, don't expect a reality TV show to bail you out. I just want to add in relation to that, when somebody was asking about Trump driving the news cycle... As president, on somebody on NPR was talking about this a few days ago, and I can't remember who responded, but it was a brilliant response. He just said, Trump has always known how to drive the news cycle because he makes news and he gets audiences and media outlets crave audiences. And that, my dear listener, is one reason, one major reason that somehow he's president. And there is... One more obituary we need comment upon for today's program, because the story is, well, there's so many elements in it that are irresistible. Arthur Janoff passed away 
recently. And to tell his tale, I'm going to quote from the obituary in The Week, which noted that in mid which noted that in the mid-1960s, psychologist Arthur Janoff listened raptly as a normally withdrawn patient told him about a piece of performance art he'd recently seen. The artist wore a diaper, the man explained, drank milk from a bottle, and writhed about on the stage crying, Mommy! Daddy! And, again, I'm just reading this. Acting on a hunch, Janoff asked the patient to do the same. Janoff later recalled, he released a piercing, death-like scream that rattled the walls of my office. All he could say afterwards was, I can feel. Inspired by this transformation, Janoff devised primal scream therapy. People's neuroses, he claimed, stemmed from repressed early life trauma, primal pain, that could only be cured by regressing to childhood and unleashing ear-shattering screams. The therapy was dismissed by many psychologists, one calling it jabberwocky. But, it should be noted, it was a hit with A-listers including John Lennon, Yoko Owner, and the actor James Earl Jones. Primal therapy, Janov said back in 1971, is, quote, the most important discovery of the 20th century, unquote. Now, we would have to note that it was in the 20th century that we learned how to fly airplanes, unleash the atom, cure with antibiotics, transmit sound and pictures through the airwaves, travel in space, while developing computers and the internet. Thus it is, Radio Parallax is unsure that primal scream therapy could be described as the most important discovery of the past century. But let me continue with this rather delicious obituary. Born in Los Angeles, Janoff described his Russian-born mother and father as indifferent parents. The great favor they did me, he said, was to give me enough pain to discover the role of pain. He, just, he studied psychology after serving in the Navy during World War II and practiced orthodox psychotherapy in California for 17 years before his screaming breakthrough. And we must confess, we're not sure how well he did with, quote, orthodox psychotherapy, unquote. But after twice being evicted from offices because of his patient screams, he founded the Primal Institute in, of course, Los Angeles in 1968. Sessions were conducted in darkened padded rooms adorned with nursery props, teddy bears, baby rattles, security blankets, and cribs. Janov announced his method to the world in 1970 with his best-selling book, The Primal Scream. John Lennon liked it so much, he immediately flew Janoff to London so he could begin treatment and based his next album, the deeply confessional John Lennon slash Plastic Ono Band, on their sessions together. So there you have it. We think we are now able to at least partially ascribe the blame for John Lennon's Plastic Ono Band to Arthur Janoff. Keep in mind that whether you like it or don't like it, Evidently, primal scream therapy primal scream therapy has a role to play in it. And since we find this to be notable research of dubious scientific value, let's devote the rest of the program to dubious re- to research of dubious value. We haven't done the ignoble awards in quite a while, but let's return to a but let's return to a topic we mentioned a few months ago. There was a new book out about Hermann Rorschacht and his inkblot test. 
When I mentioned this last time, I did not have the Scientific American piece in front of me, which I now have, so I'd like to expand upon prior remarks. Herman Rorschach was a psychiatrist. He worked alone in a remote Swiss asylum and invented his inkblot method in 1917, publishing it in 1921. He was a follower of Sigmund Freud. Although the magazine notes he was never a doctor, he was never doctrinaire or dogmatic. He once joked to a colleague, "In Vienna, they're going to be explaining the rotation of the Earth. In Vienna, they're going to be explaining the rotation of the Earth psychoanalytically before long." He'd also studied with Carl Jung in Zurich, where Jung had developed his first, where Jung had developed the first empirical test of the unconscious mind, word association. Rorschach was a lifelong artist. In school, he was known for his drawing skill. And naturally, he was thought of as visual, whereas Freud was a word person. Psychoanalysis was built around the talking cure, slips of the tongue, and what we say and don't say. But Rorschach thought how we see was more revealing than what we see. After extensive revisions, Rorschach decided on 10 ink blots to make up the test. The same 10, we would note, are still used today, 100 years later. They are not random smears. They have structural visual qualities beyond mere ambiguity. For instance, they are challenging to integrate into a whole, so that while some of us can pull together a big picture, others get hung up on details. Rorschach gave scores based on the frequency of what he termed whole, detail, and movement responses. Now, it's been a rather controversial test ever since. It was noted that in 1945, in Nuremberg, the German prisoners being tried for war crimes were given Rorschach tests, and it's noted it was not considered a success because it didn't identify a, quote, Nazi personality, unquote. Although it is claimed it did find some common elements, such as a certain lack of introspection. It was noted that the Nazis showed essentially the same range of variation from psychotic to very well-adjusted as any other group. This result was unacceptable to both psychologists and the general public. Surely, only monsters could do what the Nazis had done. So, the findings were disregarded for decades. Meanwhile, in the mid-century heyday of Freudian psychoanalysis, the Rorschach test became the leading X-ray of the unconscious. It was used in the most ham-fisted ways. It was expected not just to reveal mental illness or personality, but to practically read minds. Too many death-related responses to an inkblot dubbed the suicide card, and you became a candidate for electroshock therapy. Had he lived, noted new scientist Rorschach, would have been appalled that an inkblot test could result in such dramatic treatment. And for better or worse, and some might argue for worse, the Freudian incarnation of the Rorschach test captured the world's imagination, spreading into film noir, advertising, and popular culture. I think some of you may, like me, recall the scene in the Woody Allen movie where he's shown inkblots and all of his responses are sex. They remind him of sex. New Scientist notes that by the late 60s, the test, along with Freud, began to fall out of favor. At any rate, that's about all we have to say on the topic. For more information, you may want to read Damien Searles' The Ink Blots, Herman Rorschach, his iconic test, and the power of seeing. Speaking of seeing or not seeing, we're going to do another article from New Scientist, titled, He Blinded Us with Seance. It's a look back at clairvoyant con man Henry Slade, who electrified Europe's scientific community and took in some high-profile scientists for a reputation-destroying ride. The conman was a self-proclaimed spirit medium called Dr. Henry Slade. The apparent proof of Slade's abilities, and therefore of the supernatural, 
involved a series of 30 seances. They were held in Leipzig over the winter of 1877 and spring of 1878, with the university's best and brightest in attendance. Slade impressed the Leipzig luminaries by deflecting a compass needle with only a wave of his bare hand. Later, as men sat in a circle holding hands, objects in the room winked into and out of existence. Impossible knots appeared in lengths of cord. Lights flickered. Other times, rapping noises and music could be heard. Turns out in the end, Henry Slade was evidently a talented magician. And unfortunately, scientists who thought, well, we're smart, were taken in by him. Included among those taken in was the university's chair of astrophysics, Johann Zerlner, who came to believe that Slade's miracles represented an empirical evidence of an otherwise unobservable fourth spatial dimension inhabited by spirits. It is noted that of all the scientists who witnessed Slade in action during his time in Leipzig, only one would publicly accuse him of dishonesty, one of the university's newest faculty members, Wilhelm Wundt. Following the publication of Zerlner's Preliminary conclusions, Wundt wrote a piece that appeared in Popular Science Monthly called Spiritualism is a Scientific Question, which criticized spiritualist interpretation of the seances and proposed that they might better be attributed to jugglery or sleight of hand. Whereas Zollner had argued that scientists were the best people to assess Slade because they were trained physical observers, Wundt proposed they might not be the most qualified to detect deception. Wundt wrote that non-scientists would scarcely have neglected to examine his coat sleeves to see if that accounted for his ability to move the compass needle. Zollner countered with a blistering letter addressed to Wundt, but it turned out that uh, the scientific community did not wind up embracing Henry Slade. Zollinger would die of a stroke at age 47. The magazine noted that today, if he's remembered at all, it's for his contributions to optical illusions and not, as he had hoped, for solving the mystery of eternal life. Following Zerlner's death, Wundt took over his university's budget to establish what would become the world's first officially recognized laboratory of experimental psychology. And what about Slade? Well, in 1885, an investigative commission comprising magicians and scientists from the University of Pennsylvania would interview the surviving witnesses and even assess Slade himself. They concluded his demonstrations were, quote, so closely resembling fraud as to be indistinguishable from it, unquote. It's known that late in life, Slade's affinity with spirits got the better of him as he descended into alcoholism, dying in a sanatorium in 1905. Four days later, the New York Times ran a story that noted that Slade had not yet returned from the dead. Well, one thing we can say about Slade, he was not a scientist, and he didn't wind up doing that much harm. Unfortunately, the same cannot be said about Thomas Midgley, who has been aptly described as the one-man environmental disaster. The subtitle of the piece in New Scientist by Abigail Nussbaum was the subheadline from the piece by Abigail Nussbaum in New Scientist said, From poisonous cars to the destruction of the ozone layer, Thomas Midgley's talent for invention and lack of scruples was a killer combination. To quote from the piece, By the time of his death in 1944, Thomas Midgley Jr. was regarded as one of the great inventors of the 20th century. From cars to kitchens, his creations ran the gamut. He had turned Henry Ford's bangers into speedy must-have Cadillacs with a magic ingredient added to petrol. And for an encore, he found a chemical that made killer refrigerators and aircon units safe for millions of homes. On the face of it, an enviable legacy, except that the product of Bidgley's genius were fatally flawed. His lead-based gasoline additive damaged the developing brains of millions of children globally. And Freon 
the first CFC almost destroyed the Earth's ozone layer. Midgley is now seen as the world's worst inventor. Here's a paragraph I just have to love. Born in 1889, Midgley's first claimed invention, made in high school, was a method for curving the flight of baseballs by rubbing them with the chewed bark of the slippery elm. It was widely used, <laughs> it was widely used thereafter by baseball pitchers. At age 27, Midgley found himself working under the wing of Charles Kettering, the inventor of the electric starter motor for automobiles. He was asked to work on the problem of car engine knock. Caused by the badly timed ignition of fuel, knock was noisy, jolting, and effectively prevented the use of more efficient, higher-octane fuel. Midgley came up with no fewer than 143 fuel additives to deal with knock. The initial front-runner was ethyl alcohol, made from grains. But to Kettering and his paymasters at GM, he backed a different contender, tetraethyl lead, a compound first discovered in the 1850s and known to be highly poisonous. So why choose it? Midgley always said it was simply the most practical solution. It was cheap to make, and just a couple of grams in a gallon of fuel was enough to prevent knocking compared to the 10% dose required for ethyl alcohol. And there was a key difference between the two. Tetraethyl lead was patentable. Midgley calculated that General Motors could make three cents on every gallon of leaded fuel sold. It should be noted that from the start, medical researchers warned that it could poison the nation. In early 1923, the U.S. Public Health Service predicted that lead oxide dust would build up along busy roads. The following year, toxicologist Yandel Henderson at Yale prophetically warned that the development of lead poisoning will come on so insidiously that leaded gasoline will be in nearly universal use before the public and the government awaken to the situation. Midgley, for his part, was a canny salesman, TEL, tetraethyl lead. He insisted that they market TEL, or tetraethyl lead, as simply ethyl, with no reference to lead. He claimed there were no substitutes when he knew better than anyone how numerous they were. Well, it turned out that ethyl, gasoline, transformed motoring. Engines could run with much higher compression in their cylinders, producing markedly more power. By 1945, the whole world was driving on leaded fuel. And the science about the toxicology had been hijacked by a web of corporate-funded denialists. Sound familiar? After the four decades from 1925 on, almost all the research into the possible health effects of tetraethyl lead were conducted by employees and contractors of the Ethyl Corporation. Not surprisingly, it got a clean bill of health. Meanwhile, Midgley went back to the lab. Working with Kettering for General Motors' Frigidaire subsidiary, he set out to solve another problem. Most refrigerators at the time were industrial units dependent upon fluids that were poisonous or apt to catch fire, like methyl chloride, sulfur dioxide, and ammonia. These were not good for Frigidaire, which wanted to put a refrigerator in every home and an air conditioner in every office. Midgley found a safe synthetic alternative called dichlorofluoromethane, which he branded Freon. It was the world's first CFC. Like tetraethyl lead, it was also patentable. Frigidaire introduced it to the public in April of 1930. Domestic refrigeration never looked back. During the Second World War, Freon was an ideal propellant for spraying insect repellents such as DDT during jungle warfare. That led to household aerosols like antiperspirants. By the 1970s, as much as a million tons were being released into the air annually. Midgley was a hero among America's chemists, winning all the prizes and securing over 100 patents.
He passed away in 1944, satisfied with his contributions to mankind. It was noted that the master inventor was, of course, long gone before his creations lost their luster. It wasn't until the 1970s that Freon's ozone-destroying properties were pinned down. And then, with 75 trillion liters of leaded gasoline burned, science woke from its amnesia about the dangers of lead. The turning point came with studies in the impaired child development by psychiatrist Herman Needleman at the University of Pittsburgh, just a few miles from Midgley's childhood home. And of course, since then, we've gotten rid of tetraethyl lead for the most part, and we've pretty much gotten rid of Freon, although it is still sold in a handful of countries. Environmental historian John McNeil offered one of the most chilling epitaphs, saying that Midgley had more impact on the atmosphere than any other single organism in Earth's history. Ouch. All right, in the approximately four minutes I have left, I want to talk about one more scientist. This one really surprises me. It's from the October 14th issue of New Scientist about William Penny, a man I'd never heard of. Turns out William Penny was a pretty smart guy. It's noted that he started out as a sporty boy in a humble technical college who so outwitted his teachers it became clear he was some kind of math genius. He rose fast in academia doing pioneering work in chronomechanics in the 1930s. He spent a chunk of the Second World War researching shock waves from German bombs during the London Blitz. He had in fact become a world expert on shock waves when in the summer of 1944 he was headhunted by the newly founded Manhattan Project in the U.S. The Manhattan Project had two ideas as how to make an atomic bomb. One using uranium, which would shoot a slug of fissile material into another, and the second using plutonium. Plutonium was, either, was much easier to produce than uranium-235, but detonation turned out to be more complex. It required squeezing the plutonium using a shell of explosives. Penny was hired to model the complex shock waves to make sure it worked. His work would culminate at Nagasaki. His other task was to model the outgoing shock waves from atomic blasts to maximize their destruction. He suggested picking cities with surrounding hills to concentrate the blast, which they did at both Hiroshima and Nagasaki. William Penny apparently had a genius for simple explanations. He quickly found himself in the inner circle of advisors that Oppenheimer's boss, the irascible Lieutenant General Leslie Groves, relied upon. Now here's the part I did not realize. After the war, British scientists working on the Manhattan Project were sent packing, all except Bill Penny. He continued to work with the U.S. after Congress passed the McMahon Act in 1946, which banned all atomic bomb scientists from sharing the information with anyone, including the British. By then, Penny had secretly agreed to head the U.K.'s own program to develop an atomic bomb. The British avoided formalizing that appointment for 18 months so he could remain in Los Alamos with access to U.S. science. In a later interview, Charles Portal, who was in charge of the UK program, said, We were getting a lot of stuff under the counter. The channel was almost entirely to Penny. And evidently, thanks to the work of what appears to be something of a British spy in America, the UK did develop its own atomic bomb. But eight days after it vaporized Trimool Island off of Australia, the US exploded its new hydrogen bomb, hundreds of times more powerful. Winston Churchill asked Penny to produce one of those too. Well, it turned out he now had little access to U.S. work being done on the hydrogen bomb. 
and the U.S. and Soviet Union were drafting a global treaty banning nuclear bomb tests that would have stymied his efforts. By 1957, the new British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan believed he was poised to get the U.S. to amend the McMahon Act to allow resumption of sharing of nuclear information between the U.S. and the U.K. Macmillan had an upcoming summit with President Eisenhower to secure that deal, but agreeing to share secrets required the U.K. to show that it had something to share. That something was to be a British-designed hydrogen bomb. Penny would deliver again. Four months before the summit, he invited journalists to Malden Island in the Pacific to witness the detonation of the Orange Herald, a megaton bomb that they dutifully reported was the U.K.'s first H-bomb. Only in the 1990s did it emerge publicly that, in fact, it was not. Orange Herald was in reality a giant fission bomb. But it successfully misled the U.K. press and then legislators in the U.S. Congress. After the summit, Congress amended the McMahon Act, believing they would be sharing science with a fellow H-bomb nation. This was followed by a flow of nuclear products, mostly from the U.S. to the U.K. I had no idea. You do have to hand it to the guy. Yep, this is an H-bomb. Who's going to say it's not? But then again, they may have been misled by the words genuine H-bomb painted on the casing. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax.